0: All right, let's just say what it is. This is like, get your seatbelt on, cinch up your belt, get your notes out. This is a five-part series that I'm doing today, all right? I'm just being honest with you. Many churches will take these five things that I'm going to cover in the next several days, I mean minutes, all right? We're going to look at the idea of transformed. When you think of the idea of being transformed, let's do it together, that metamorphosis, what is the picture you have in your mind? It is a what? A butterfly. Survey says. Butterfly, you got it, right? We we think of transformation of the, you know the cocoon and then the, or the, the caterpillar, the cocoon and the butterfly. But let's just be honest, I've been hanging with a four and a half year old and a two and a half year old this week. And in my mind, transformed goes to transformers. This is what I think about in terms of transform. So we're going to look at the idea of being transformed today. And uh, whether it's butterflies or Optimus Prime, uh, we want to transform our lives, right? Think of the things we want to change about our lives. We want to transform our waistlines. We want to transform our golf games. We want to transform our careers, and more importantly today, we want to transform our spiritual lives, don't we? And so uh, this process of our spiritual life being transformed is called the uh, the sanctification process. Let me again remind you theologically what happens. You're born over here, right, and all this time at, at some point Lord willing, you make a decision for Christ at the cross. That's the salvation process. And then after the salvation process, the rest of your life until you die and you go to be with Jesus is the sanctification process. What do we have on this side of the cross? The salvation process. What's this side of the cross? Sanctification process, but that's a long word, so we're just going to call it transformed, the transformation process. And so, Back in that previous section last week, Pastor Scott said, look back at verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 4, it says, put off the old self and put on the new self. The obvious question will be, to those of you sitting here, well, what does that new man, what is that new self supposed to look like? And Paul, like he does so well, give us, gives us five little couplets Put off this, put on this. He doesn't use those words, but he'll compare and contrast the old self with the new self. Now, interesting enough, if you look at the English text, it looks like these are imperatives, that these are commands, but let me do a little Greek geek for you here. Those, that's in the aorist tense, which means it happens in the past, and it has ongoing results into the future. And so the old you, that's your past. So let's just stop for a moment and just agree that what I'm talking about today isn't behavior modification, that you just got to be a better person and live for Jesus, all right? That is not what I'm talking about, all right? What I'm talking about is not Jesus taking good people and making them better. Jesus says he takes you because you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and he makes you alive. Not good to great, but from dead to alive. And you could say, so these things, kind of on the right side of the sheet, so to speak, are the things that are transformative. These are the evidences of a changed life. And so we'll look at that together. And I guess the question I'm asking is, what does the cross-shaped, transformed life look like? That's what we're going to look at today. And so Five. Uh, Paul gives us these five evidences, and let's just hop right into it. Verse 25, number one, forfeit falsehood and instead tell the truth. Now, I have a lot of stuff I'm covering. It's on page one, two, three, and your questions are on page four, so grab this for taking notes, all right? Forfeit falsehood and instead tell the truth. Look at the text. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That idea of falsehood is the word pseudos or fake, right? And moving from lying to telling the truth. Now, most of us would not claim to be habitual liars. I'm pretty sure most of you are not habitual liars. But before I let you off the hook, could you be maybe tempted to shade the truth from time to time? Maybe half truths, embellishing the truths, excuses. In fact, ultimately, lying is the idea of denial. Uh, Don't even know I am lying. That's the acrostic for that. Don't even know I'm lying. Remember, Satan is the father of lies, John eight844. So our culture deceives us and think, "Oh, it's no big deal. Just kind of you know, play loose with the truth from time to time. And so sometimes we uh, lie by exaggerating, or some, most of the time we're lying. Uh, Because we're telling half-truths. What is the most famous half-truth ever concocted? You're going to finish it. I know you know it. It's called, the check is in the mail. There you go. See, we all know it. Or how about this one? Parents, you told some half-truths when you were disciplining your kids at younger age, when you're about to discipline, and you said this phrase, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you you're not talking loud enough own that come on come on that yeah or how about the kissing cousin this when my wife made me take the kids to get their shots I have to hold them down or hold them and the and baby's looking up and they get the shot and you you know this is only going to hurt for a little while honey and oh daddy you you traitor and so, uh, we all have dealt with half-truths, right? I'll come back and give you the biggest half-truther in the Old Testament in just a moment. But let's be honest. Why do we lie? Why do we lie? All right? Let me give you four reasons why you might lie, okay? We Number one, we, we lie, or five reasons. One, because we, we hide our mistakes, right? Like, you know, if you ever bounced a check? Anybody? I won't. You can be honest. If you, don't raise your hand. Have you? you ever bounced a check and then kind of... Lied to your spouse about balancing the check as you tried to scramble to cover it. You know, maybe you, you hide your mistakes. Or how about flattery or people-pleasing? We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to risk being rejected. We, we like what people think about us. And so the ultimate flattery or people-pleasing might be with your boss. And what we even have a phrase for it. What do we do? it? We call it what? Kissing up to the boss. Yeah, it's kind of a descriptive idea of not telling the boss the truth, but what he wants or she wants to hear And so, by the way, flattery is something, there's my definition of flattery. When I say something to your face that is different than what I would say to my closest friends about you, okay? Proverbs 26, 28 says, flattering mouth produces ruin, Proverbs 26, 8. Third reason we lie is we don't want to hurt people's feelings, and I'll come back to that one in a moment. We just don't want to hurt people's feelings, Um, and so maybe some of you are married to someone who... Doesn't want to hurt someone's feelings. When I give you this little truth formula, we'll come back to that one. Or number four, to avoid pain. I'm sure every one of you in this room may have shaded the truth a bit to avoid a spanking as a kid. And so we want to avoid pain, all right? But the last one, this is a more sobering one, is we lie because we fear to be transparent. We fear to be transparent. We fear to be vulnerable, Here's a story, so you're in a life group, things are tough, your marriage is just struggling and you go around on the check-in time and you say, hey, how's everybody doing? And what do you say? "Ah, oh, we're doing great. And in your heart, you're going, you big liar. If we can't be honest in our life group or in a, a small men's group, where, where are we going to be honest, friends? Where are we going to be transparent? A few weeks ago, I preached, and arguably, I've gotten more response from emails and texts, and people come up to me about a, a very vulnerable story I shared about our family. Makes me wonder if you heard the whole rest of the message, because that's all I heard, like, oh, man, we're praying for you. By the way, when you're vulnerable, there's a little pride issue, because it says, I can't do this without you. I need you. I need the body of Christ to support me. And as a pastor, sometimes I want to make it look like I got it all together. You know what? Let's just be clear. I clearly don't have it all together. And thank goodness I'm married to a woman that helps me not look as bad as I really am, quite frankly. We'll get back back to that in just a moment. All right? So those are reasons why we sometimes lie. But. The ultimate lie is really not a lie. I think what I see in the Old Testament sometimes with our biblical characters is what we call half-truthing, these half-truth lives, And a half-truth is uh, the worst kind or the half-truths that we share that are meant to deceive. So, think with me out loud. Old Testament character, name begins with A. Who's the ultimate half-truth liar in the the Old Testament? Do you know the guy's name? His name was? Abram. Now, his name's Abraham, but at the time he's lying, his name is Abram. He's not married to Sarah. He's married to Sari, and he tells this half-truth. Now, you know the story potentially. Genesis chapter 12, we won't turn there, but arguably, Sari is the hottest 65-year-old woman on the face of the planet, all right? We have a term for her. She's a hottie, right? And so, he's married to her. They're going go to go cruise in Egypt, Pharaoh you know, tends to get the best of, of, of everybody. And so he tells his wife what? Tell them you're my sister. Now, was that a lie? No, no, no. It, it's kind of the truth. It's actually a half-truth because if you don't know, uh, actually, it was technically true because she was his half-sister. Then you go, that's creepy. I know, same father, different mothers for Abraham, uh, Abram and Sarah, Genesis 20:12. Well, if that's not bad enough, now Isaac, many many years later, he's cruising into to Philistine land with Abimelech. What does he say about his wife, who's maybe the second, you know, hottie of the land? And he he tells his wife, Rebecca, what? Tell him you're what? My sister, son was just following in dad's footsteps, right? Abraham half lied. uh, Jake, uh, Isaac full on lied, right? It gets worse. Now they have. there's a grandson involved. His name's Jacob. His name means supplanter and main, name is sneaky. So there's this continued pattern of family deceit. And we go from a half lie to a full lie to what I call a despicable lie. He does it two times to his brother Esau, his twin brother, robs him of his birthright. You can check that out on your own in Genesis 25. But the horrible lie is that in conspiracy with his mom, Rebecca, they steal the family heritage and blessing um, from him in Genesis 27 and just flat out steals it from him from a half lie to a full lie to a despicable lie. That's the pattern. you know we wonder why our kids lie to us sometimes right back in the day many of you cannot remember us there were actually phones that were connected to cords and there was no caller ID and so a phone would ring and your kids were assigned to answer the phone at least in my house, and maybe you did this with your kids, or maybe you, did, you were part of this, this lie. The phone rang, and the, your, your parents can hear that somebody they do not want to talk to. And so they say something like this to you. Tell them I'm not here. I'm not home. And their veins are, don't do tell it. And the kid's going, huh, first word sounds like, and he mumbles something, and, you know, you lie to the guy. You were home. Now, it's amazing to me that the same parent who will do that with his kid then gets upset with the kid when the kid lies about going to the party. He says, I went, I went to, I'm going to the library. Well, he went to the library like four minutes and then went to the party for four hours. So it's kind of a half-truth. You see, here's a principle. You can take it to the bank. Our kids, Our kids will model our behavior, but they won't always buy into our boundaries. They'll model the behavior. Now, I, I told this story many years ago, and I'm, but it's worth repeating because I just, this is driven home so often our kids are watching us. Are they not? Any of you, how many of you are parents? How many know about what I'm about to be saying is you could, you could have raised your hand and said, yep, I've done that. They did exactly what I just d- told them not to do. So Katie, my daughter who's now 32, is four. My son's 18 months old. We're going for a little Breakfast run at our favorite place, and we drop Cheryl and John Daniel off at the front door. They're getting on the wait list, and Katie and I are going to hunt for a parking spot, right? So, any of you who know this tradition anywhere, across a crowded great breakfast spot, you got to work it, you know, to find it. So, I'm going down this aisle like this, and you know, I see that this car is pulling out like this. It's doing this thing, and it's going like this. So I got my left blinker on. I'm about to possess the land. You know the drill. This is my parking spot. By the way, ladies, you don't quite understand this. This is a very possessive kind of thing. This is, this is a man thing. Like, I'm going to own that. That's mine. I'm signaling to the world. It's mine, right? We get it. So the car pulls out and goes. But before I can turn left, these two girls in a Volkswagen VW convertible whip in and take my spot. Now, let me just tell you here. The joy of the Lord is not my strength at this point, all right? I've been hunting the land for this parking spot, and they snaked my spot. Now, I'm embarrassed to say, those of you who are to the church, forgive me. I know I'm a pastor, but, you know, just this is what it did. This, this was long, many, many, many years ago, right? So as I drive by, I look at those two college girls, and I say, you jerks, you took my parking spot. Now, some of you look at me like, Pastor John, that is not very pastoral. I know it isn't. I'm embarrassed, but I'm just telling you. That's what I said. And, and I'm, I didn't get the spot. So I'm driving back now the other way. You know, I'm not even paying attention. For whatever reason, they're still there. I'm driving by this way. I'm looking to the left That's back in the day we didn't have push-button windows. Little four-year-old Katie rolls down the window, the girls for some reason. And by the way, they were the ultimate surf chicks, blonde-haired dude, you know. Um, And she rolls down the window and she says, you jerks, you took my daddy's parking spots. (laughs) Now, I got to tell you, what did I say to Katie at that point? I used three names, Katie, Marie, Irwin, right? By the way, kids, you are always busted when you get the three-name call out. I mean, you're done, right? what are you doing? And you could see the puzzlement on little four-year-old Katie's face looking up at daddy, a little tear in her eye, because she was just doing what her daddy had just done. Our kids model our behavior, but they don't always buy our boundaries. So he says, quit lying. Instead, what does he say? Tell the truth. What a concept. Look at verse, the, the, the verse continues. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so, what, how do we do that? Well, to do that, he gives you a hint on how to tell the truth back in verse 15. What does it say? Speaking the truth in love. So, how do we speak the truth in love? Let's look at this formula, all right? Let me look, show you this formula. From Ephesians 4:15, it's not an either-or. If it's all truth minus love, equals hurt. All truth minus love equals hurt. Now, in a moment of transparency and honesty, let this, you can vote. How many of you tend to be truth speakers? I'm gonna tell them the truth. Okay, one, two. There's three of us. Thank you. We'll start a support group. Five, six. Seven, okay. So there's enough of us. There's safety in numbers. All right. We speak the truth. Right. Now, the problem is we speak the truth, but we leave an emotional wake of carnage behind (laughs) us, right? It is the truth, but it's not what you said, it's how you said it. I can't tell you how many times I just wish I could, like, ah, bring that one back, reel it back in. I I said the truth, I just didn't say it in, in a loving way. Now, how many of you, second part of the formula, it's all love minus truth, that equals hypocrisy or half-truth, okay? Truth speakers are out in the open. How many of you are the lovers here? I'm going to love you. Raise them high. I want to see all the lovers, okay? Hopefully you're married to a truth speaker and you kind of balance each other out, right? But if it's all love minus truth, and that goes back to why we lie, because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, right? I just don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. And so we kind of leave it at that. So truth plus love, according to the principle, is honesty. That's the kind of communication we want, truth and love. It's not an either or, it's an and both. First thing, all right? So stop stop lying, start telling the truth. Number two, abandon ungodly anger, flip your notes open, and adopt godly anger. All right? The old you might do something like this. You'd blow up at people, flip people off on the freeway who cut you off, you used an F-bomb from time to time, you're passive-aggressive, you use silent treatment, you hold grudges, uh, you have unbelievable fits of rage, you, you, uh, your veins pop out of your neck when you're in an argument with your spouse. Any of this sound familiar? Do not raise your hand. Anybody embarrassed? I'm embarrassed. Because I know that there are times this I'm that guy. I don't want to be that guy. And um, It is so easy when you have an anger issue to rationalize it. You say things like, but I'm just a really passionate person. Yeah, you're a passionate person who's about to blow like old faithful, right? And by the way, interesting enough, that Greek word for that kind of anger is thumos, and it's like the idea of old faithful. Some of you are gushers. Thankfully, I'm not going to make you raise your hand to say if you're a gusher, uh, but some of you are. James 1:19 says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The other way we rationalize, I'm just irritated. No, well, your irritation looks pretty much like road rage to me. That's just, just saying, you know. Um, or frustrated, et cetera. And so, just once, by the way, just a sidebar, just once I'd like to preach a message where there wasn't some physical example that I'm compelled to maybe share, but I don't really want to share because I got angry and I had to go make it right with someone and it wasn't my wife, thank goodness. Oh, it was great. This week was awesome, you know. But so often, (laughs) well, it is because usually every marriage retreat we've ever done, like, oh boy, we're going to have a blow-up, so I have a story to tell at the marriage retreat about how I messed up again. 39 times now I've done that same mistake now. But the bottom line is, as God was shaping me, as I look at the text, I realize, man, my truth telling gets me into trouble so many times. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta dial it back. I gotta hold back. Don't always say what I'm thinking. So, what causes the anger? By the way, anger is not in and of itself a sin. We know that, right? Anger is emotion. In fact, anger, for most people, it's a secondary emotion. So why do people get mad? Let me give you four reasons. Number one, deep hurt. Deep hurt. Simple illustration. Your spouse cheats on you and leaves you for another person, you're going to be hurt. Understandably so. Number two, fear. Every mom who's had a two-year-old who tries to walk in the street in front of an oncoming car understands that kind of anger. You grab the kid from safety. Why don't ever do that again? Right, and the kid's going, "What?" You know, you just saved the kid's life, but your fear caused you to be angry. Third one, unmet expectations or frustration. You get a flat tire. You're late to work. You get passed over for promotion. We're frustrated. Or how about the fourth one, injustice? Anybody deal with that one? Jesus did, overturning tables of the money changers in the temple. Or how we feel about kids who've been sexually abused, child abuse, sex trafficking. Those are, those are injustices, the things that kind of make you pound the table like, this makes me mad. So that's reasons why we get mad. But he says there's a way to have godly anger. The new man, the transformed man, deals with anger in a different kind of way. And he tells you how you process anger in a godly way. The transformed does it in three specific ways. Look at the text here, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Practice sinless anger. We might call this righteous anger. I would say out of the four causes for anger, most of us do not have righteous anger. Our anger is rooted in deep hurt or frustration for many of us. Now, some of you kind of look at the Old Testament and you say, see, God, by the way, God is a God of anger. Not solely anger, He's many things, but He's a righteous God. He's a jealous God. In fact, some mistakenly look at God of the Old Testament and say, that God is the God of anger and Jesus is the God of love in the New Testament. Not true. Old Testament, 499 times God's anger or jealousy or wrath are mentioned. Over 1,220 times, however, God's mercy, love, and forgiveness are mentioned in just the Old Testament alone. So He's not a God of the either or, He's the and both. If you want to go to my notes on the website, all this will be printed out. You can look at how the Trinity expresses anger. I won't take time to do that, but each member of the Trinity displays anger. But it's a sinless anger. Secondly, put a time limit on the conflict. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this would have been a very, very um, understandable concept for, for Paul's readers because he's, he's quoting Psalm 4, verses 4 and 5, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. And so this righteous anchor is not a temper tantrum. You put a time limit on conflict. The big idea on the time limit is not so much that you actually quit deal with the whole situation before you go to bed. All right? What we're talking about here is don't stew in it. Don't do the slow-motion crock-pot replay, instant replay, slow-mo, back it up in your mind about how they wronged you, you know, messed with you, caused problems, you know, all those ways, quite frankly, that we kind of regurgitate our hurt and disappointment. That's what it's getting at. So literally, it doesn't mean before you go to bed, but you got to have a stopping-off point. How many of you ever heard this, Uh, nothing good happens after in your family? What was the time? Midnight. My, my parents were much more conservative. It was like 8.30. No, it was... Yeah, nothing good happens after midnight. Let me tell you what doesn't happen good after midnight. A marital discussion where we're going to resolve our conflicts. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. I'm telling you. After midnight, this is what happens, and here's how it goes down in our house. My wife, first of all, is the early to bed, early to rise. I'm the late night guy. So I can deal with stuff after midnight. Yeah, we can deal with the sunny right after sports center's over. Yeah. That's not a good plan, right, because then you're tired and you say things you regret. Anybody ever said something they regretted later into the night? You ever said it after you were in an argument and you had no idea how you got from A to B? Like there was some rabbit trail, how did we get here? We went from laundry to bouncing paychecks to you don't love me to how come we don't have dates anymore? I'm like, I mean, it just you went all over the map, right? So put a time limit on it, but in protection for the introverts here, just for a moment, How, who are the introverts out in the crowd here? Just, there's nothing wrong. This is, not a, this is not a right or wrong. This is not multi, Just you have two choices. Introverts, raise your hand. we are the extroverts? Okay. So the problem with the sun going down your anger, some of you extroverts want to deal with it right now. We're going we're to get it all done. We're going to resolve it right now, right? Now, the introverts want to ponder. They want to think about a thoughtful response. They want to measure their words. The extroverts often we just go right. Here's what the extroverts are like in an argument sometimes. Blow up a balloon and let it go. All right? And it comes to rest, you're you're feeling good. You got it out. The introvert is just like boom, 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 and they're like, no. Let me think about this, right? So I think he says there should be a timeline, on it, but give your spouse a chance to think it through. Because some of you are married to skilled verbal hostage negotiators, and you're the hostage, right? You're the hostage. And they're like, and at 12 o'clock, you said this, and then we did that. And then they're just like, and they're like lawyers. And you're going, well, I didn't think about that. Well, what were you thinking? I don't know. I I was just feeling that, I'm feeling, you know, and we kind of give them that right thing, right? And so give them a chance to think, because I'll tell you what, an introvert who says something too soon, will they almost always say things they regret because that's just not who they are. They're being pushed to deal with it. So don't do that. Okay, moment of confession. First year of our marriage, right? The sun cannot go down on your anger, all right? It's in the first four months, I think, right? We had gotten into this discussion, because well, Christians don't fight, just a discussion. And I got, a, you know, and took my pillow, took my blankie, Went to the couch, realized well, we're for, no, we don't even have a couch, so I'm stuck in a chair. It's horrible. I'm in a chair, and I'm just, like, stewing it. I'm, I'm, de- I'm deliberately disobeying the Scriptures, or I'm just stewing in it, you know. Now, I don't know what Cheryl was doing. I'm sure she was in her godly way praying for her wayward husband, you know. And so, I'm, I'm just, you know, kind of… Mm. About 45 minutes into it, I realize this is silly. This is really silly. And if you are listening to the Holy Spirit and you're just not into your own agenda and it's just not about you being right, if you'll get quiet before the Lord, I'm going to tell you, when you're sitting in a chair and not in your bed with your beloved, the Holy Spirit will speak to you. And He said, yeah, you, you should have not said that. Maybe you could have backed off on that. Maybe you could do this and a whole bunch of stuff came flooding my eye, and I started repenting, and I started praying, and this is dumb. But the coolest thing happened is I'm making my way back to the bedroom down this hallway. She has gotten out of the bed from that and is making her way, and we met in the middle of the hallway. You see, we knew this wasn't a good way to go to bed. This wasn't a good way to, to end it for the night. We couldn't finish that discussion, couldn't ra- uh, work it all out right then, but we agreed from that day forward, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to say, hey, maybe we just got to, let's let's deal with this tomorrow. I love you, honey, but this is a stopping off point for right now. And I think that's what he's telling us. And I think for many of us, if we could learn to just just slow it down a bit and then deal with the conflict. And then thirdly, he says, protect your back. Godly anger, you got to protect your back because there's someone who wants you to fail in that. Look at verse 27, and give no opportunity for a a foothold to the devil. You see... Satan would love to insert himself in the crevice of conflict to the wedge of worry and the backdrop of bitterness, and inadvertently you open yourself up to spiritual attack. Now, this idea that the devil made me do it, not so much. The devil doesn't make you do anything. He allows your bitterness to fester and grow. He prompts you. By the way, anybody doesn't believe in the idea of how someone can prompt someone else to do something they shouldn't do? Hasn't had a four-and-a-half-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old two in the same space. I, it's a work of art. I can't believe how my grandson, Phineas, can get Rhett to do just about anything. Hey, Rhett, eat dirt. It's really good. Okay. <laughs> ah, right? <laughs> I, got, I have so many stories today. I cannot tell. Come to my life group. I'll tell them all. Um, but I just can tell you also, went fishing with them for the first time. Two-and-a-half-year-olds have an inordinate fascination for worms and where they should be in their mouth or not in their mouth. Just leaving it at that, all right? And so, remember who the devil is. He's a snake. He's the father of lies, right? Okay, third little checklist that we're going through here on the transformed life. Number three, quit stealing and start sharing. Quit stealing. Now, you say, really? Yeah, Stealing? Because... Uh, most of you have not robbed banks recently. I, I, I think probably most of you have not shoplifted any time recently at least. Um, and it is the Eighth Commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, 15. And so, but some of his readers had kind of that sordid background. But how do we steal today in a real practical way? In the workplace, do we steal by spending time surfing the Internet and checking our Facebook page instead of working? Or maybe we're padding our expense accounts, we're fudging our time cards, we're skimming cash from the till. I mean, that one came out of a group that I was in recently that told me that, that was kind of the accepted practice. That's how they made a little extra tips. But we rationalize, it: like, oh, well, the owners are making plenty of money. They're not treating us fairly as employees. Or maybe when we're eating out, the waitress doesn't charge you for something on your bill and you just, oh, we saved. 20 bucks. They didn't charge us for that steak. Every time I always tell a waitress that she didn't charge me enough for that, she looks at me like, you fool, you idiot. Why did you just not go with it? You know? And I said, No, no, I, you know, I don't do that. I here, I put it back on. Yeah. Um, or maybe we falsify expenses or we don't report all of our income, our tips on our income tax. You know. We've just rationalized the way that we steal from time to time. I may have told this before. <clears throat> I have a friend, Dewey Berlin, who's a big-time speaker, speaks all over the country, and he was speaking at an event one time, and um, several hundred high school kids, and he got his honor am check. Next day, he's at the bank in town there and, and cashing the check, and the, the teller inadvertently gave him 20 bucks more than he should have, and Dewey was kind of goes, oh hey, you gave me too much. You gave me twenty dollars too much. And the bank teller didn't even blink. He said, "I know exactly what I did. I was at your event last night. I just wanted to see whether you practiced what you preached." Key. you know, I think that's for many of us. It's easy to say that. Oh, that's no big deal. It is a big deal. Christ's name's at stake. It's a big deal. So, what's the three three step process to stop lying? All right. He gives it to you. Verse 28, let the thief steal no longer. So don't steal, all right? So stop thinking like the world owes you something. Stop thinking in terms of entitlement. Let's not be lazy and self-centered. Now, I'm not talking about some of you who've been through just horrible work employment issues and unemployment. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who just work the system. They're lazy. They're stealing in a sense, by the way, 2 Thessalonians is kind of direct about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, you don't work, you don't eat. Ouch. And so, um, number two, he says, work hard, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Honest work develops this work ethic. By the way, most of us have soft hands, right? You know, we're on computers, our hands aren't calloused, You know, we got carpal tunnel from living on a computer 16 hours a day, right? But we're talking about hard work. It develops character. And you're going to see something here that you go from stealing, and this hard work is a bridge to to actually sharing resources. By the way, all of us have had a horrible job. Have we not? Someone that had a horrible job? My most horrible job working honest labor with my hands was when I was 16. I was in a sausage factory in Covina, California, and I'm stripping sausage casings that have busted out of their casing. By the way, this is a disgusting job. Why have I ever eaten sausage again after this experience? Ugh, you know, but it was honest work with my hands. Then the more, the more fun but treacherous job was when I was in college, I worked for the LA County Flood Control District, cut and underneath these uh, telephone lines and uh, went into uh, almost cardiac arrest several times because I was cutting brush, and right underneath me is a rattlesnake, curled and perched, going, and, but lightning speed, I got out of there, and um, not a problem, not a problem at all, you know. see, we lie so easily. See, I just, I did the old man thing there. And so the third one is sharing resources, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So not only you go from being a taker to a worker to a giver. Put that into the text. Taker, worker, giver. Isn't that awesome? And so now you're giving, you're sacrificial. You know how we steal it from the church? Awkward point. We're not tithing. We're robbing God, it says in Malachi. By the way, we don't hardly ever talk about money, but the text gives it to me here. So don't rob God tithe. You know what's really cool? There's a guy in the back here, usher second hour, his name's Stan Deacon. And, uh, ironically, Stan Deacon administers the Deacon Fund, which I think is kind of interesting. And um, you know, we have over $30,000 on average we keep in this account. We just, we don't hardly ever say anything about it. A communion Sunday, you give, we just fill it up. And then the coolest part of my job, almost every week, I get to give away money. Note to self, For people in need. Oh, oh, oh! I thought maybe you're just like giving it away. No, not exactly that way, because God has commanded us to take care of the needy people, and we've made people's house payments. We've helped them with electricity. We've helped them with food. Now, there are times where I'm getting some tall fish tails. I get it, and so we have some due diligence stuff. But you know, the cool thing is we're sharing our resources because you, you've shared your resources to help a needy community both inside and outside the church. The other way that we can share resources is just be generous and bless others. That's why the high school kids all know, if you know me and you actually know my name and I know your name and you send me a support letter, generally speaking, for a missions trip or a GAPE tour, they know Pastor John and Pastor, uh, Pastor John and Cheryl, we're going to write you a check because I want to bless these guys. I want to... God's blessed me. How can I bless them? Through their support, their trips. So, share your resources. Number four, move from tearing down to building up others, verses 29 to 32. Tearing down others, that's hurtful, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That word uh, corruptible talk is used of rotten fruit or you know rotting maggot-filled meat. That's just a disgusting word picture. I, I, I admit it. But he says, "Hey, don't be that. Don't have this unwholesome vulgarity, profanity, cursing, gossip as part of your life." Just check it out later. James chapter three talks about the power of the tongue, and all I've got to say is our culture has become coarse. I just got to say it. Um, so many times I've just got to turn the channel. I just can't watch some of this stuff, especially late night TV and talk show hosts and just nasty stuff. We've become coarse. But you know how we've become coarse in the church? And I'm just going to, I know every time I walk around the podium here, I go from preaching to meddling. So I'm just going to meddle just for a second. Would you please not say, oh my God, as a descriptor adjective and you're describing what's going on? If you're saying, oh my God, and it's in worship, uh, in prayer, I got it, but not as an adjective because you don't have a better phrase to say this was surprising or like well, you can't believe this, okay? Just, but it's just one of my things. You know, Scott doesn't like the word moist. I don't like the word, oh my God, okay, or that phrase. Fair enough? Done. Okay. So what's the rotten word test? Very simple. Rotten word test. Is it shameful? So here's the deal. If you said it and Jesus is riding shotgun in your car, would He go like, whoa, 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 hmm, back off? That's the shameful test. The, the hurtful test is, if I say this, would it be better off unsaid? So if it's better to have zipped it, then just let's practice zipping it, all right? Let's do that. Instead, He says, of like tearing people down, which is hurtful, let's build each other up. Verse 29b, that's going to be helpful. All right, hurtful to helpful. But only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Look in your notes here. <clears throat> I'm giving you a four-sentence quiz, little inventory. We're not going to do it together, but just look at that and give yourself a little grade. Are you an encourager or a deflator? You put people up or you put them down? First Thessalonians 5.11, but encourage one another. Number 2. Do you believe the best or assume the worst about another person? 1 Corinthians 13:7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Is it appropriate number 3 for the situation? Proverbs 10:32. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. And number 4 are, are your words grace-filled? Proverbs 11:16. A gracious woman gets honor and violent men get riches. Just a little indicator, a little checklist, how am I doing in building up other people? The result is you won't grieve the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Commentators kind of say this could be here, it could be at the end of the text, but the bottom line, I think he put it here because this is the one section that when the body of Christ tears each other up, it just grieves the Holy Spirit. And I am so grateful that we have a church that isn't. Eating each other up, not tearing each other down. Unfortunately, some of you who are now sitting in this church have just come recently from a church where that didn't go so well for you, and you left because you didn't want to be a part of that drama. And there was just all kinds of backbiting and gossip and backstabbing and, you know this and that. So I understand there are sometimes you just say, "For the sake of unity, I'm going to disengage. Just know, this is a place you can heal. But this isn't a place you can come and start division. This is a happy place because God's Spirit is on the move in this place. Not because we're so great, but because He's so great. Not because it's all about us, it's because about Him. It's not because of what we've done, it's because of what He's done, amen? And so let's just continue to do what God's calls to in building up one another. And I have to say here, The old man, life does grieve the Holy Spirit. Those things that grieve the Holy Spirit, that's the old you. That's the past. That's not who you are today. Because the transformed life, you're different. And so, write this down. God is more interested in your direction than your perfection. And for some of you, the most encouraging thing I can say to you is, it's okay, man, don't beat yourself up because you messed up. Fast we had a guy that I've spent a lot of time with. just spent 18 months in jail. He's lost his marriage. He, he admits it. He screwed it up. He took money. It's just a bad deal. He's going to rebuild his life. But it's so easy when we mess up to just beat ourselves and shame ourselves. And that isn't what we're doing here today. By the way, write this down and look it up later. This is not therapeutic moral deism. You go, what? Ooh just another day, another time, just look that up, we'll discuss it. But that's not what this is about. You see, when Satan reminds you of your past, you can remind him about his future. I think that's a good line, right? Don't get drugged through the mud of your past. God is good. Number five, rid yourself of destructive behaviors and replace them with Christ-like character qualities. So, obviously. Paul is wound up like a top. He's given all these things, and he goes and another thing, and now he goes on a whole. On. This this is a whole message. These next two verses, in and of themselves, so there are these are six vices of the old, hearted, hard-hearted you. What are they? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Put away all these things, and then he does something very funny. Anytime you see this in the New Testament, and then if he adds this little phrase. And along with that, with all malice. It's kind of like, and if I've forgotten anything, I'm putting it under the broad category of malice. And just look up malice because it like is a catch-all for anything that is harmful to people and a general term for evil and the root of all vices. That's the definition of malice. So he's wound up. And he says, instead, the soft-hearted knew you. There's these three virtues. What does Christ-like character look like? This is so awesome. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Remember I said the sanctification process goes from the cross all the way to the time you die? You want to know if you're a little bit more like Jesus? Hey, am I more kind today than I was yesterday, last year, last decade? Am I more tenderhearted? Am I more forgiving? You know... This idea of being kind. You know, it's hard to be kind when you're mad at somebody because you know you're right, right? And it's hard to let go. I told last hour that, you know, one of the kindest people I know is a guy named Dave Anthold. He's in my our life group, and he's leading the current life group that I, I kind of launched recently. And I was all wound up about something, and I was going to send an email to to this organization that involves our Mexico trip, and, and you know, and I... I said, "Hey Dave, I sent you an email. I want you to look at this before I send it." And I called him back and say, "Well, what do you think?" Here's Dave's response. He goes, "Yeah, I don't really think you should send that email. <laughs> Why not? It's true." <laughs> he goes, "Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't send that." But he goes, "Yeah, I think I'd hit delete." You know, and he would. He was. He was just would not back down. And it was the right thing. I didn't send it. I deleted it. He's kind. He's kind. In fact, he's the guy that you don't know sometimes. He'll write you a thank you note, or not a thank you, just a word of encouragement. That's Dave Anthold. He'll just write random people in the church. Tenderhearted. Sensitive, sympathetic. I'm married to a tenderhearted woman. I am so blessed. I know I brag about her every time I preach, but I can't help it and many of you are married to a spouse who's just tender-hearted. When you are tender-hearted, here's how I see you, because it's not my natural deal. Tender-hearted people give other people breaks. They do believe the best. They're tender-hearted. They're kind. And then thirdly, a forgiving spirit. You extend grace and mercy. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? I know it's hard because... Sometimes you feel really betrayed, and you got to let go of that hurt. So interesting enough, as we wrap up, all these instructions coming here are wrapped in a context of where he uses the word love 15 times in 14 verses. And 35 years later, the Apostle John, writing to the church of Ephesus in Revelation, something I'd never seen until this week, reading this context and saying, look at the Ephesians church because he's praising them. And look at what John says. I know your works, your toil, your patience, your endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Think about that, logic, truth speakers. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false, you holding to theology, knowing the enduring patiently and bearing up for the namesake and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, or as we learned it. You've lost your first love. Folks, it doesn't matter that we get all of our... Theo- I mean, theology is important, let me just say. For the tape, theology is important, okay? <laughs> Getting it all right, living for Christ, but in the end, if we don't do it in the context of love, First Corinthians says we're a, a clanging gong and a sounding, cranky little cymbal. And so, let me challenge us. Don't become like Ephesus, right? If if we're writing to ABF today, man, it's great to get the doctrine and theology and behavior in line, but do it in the context of loving one another because I don't want to in 35 years come rolling up in my wheelchair at ABF and going, what happened here? How come you guys aren't loving each other anymore? Why are you being mean-spirited? We don't have to because we're a new man in Christ, we're new women in Christ, we're transformed. And we're going to sing about that from the inside out. God is going to change us. And so let us love God. Let us love other people. You know how that love works best in a community? It works when we support one another. One of my, and I can't, it's so fun because he's actually here and I can talk about him Friend of mine is sitting right in the second row. His name's John Lopez. You know what love is and the Christian life is for me? It's what happens when I go work out with John Lopez, my torturer. And I'm doing this bench press, and this guy can like bench press me and then some. But he's being nice to me, and we only put like 120 on the bar instead of 250. And then we get up to higher weights, and and I can barely do it. And this is how many of you approach the Christian life. You're by yourself. You're the lone ranger. You're doing it solo. And you're just straining in the Christian life to get the bar up. But you know what I have in my life? I got a John Lopez. He says, you can do it. I'm going, I'm pretty sure I'm not because I'm going to crush my trachea right now. Because I got you. Really? Yeah. And the guy has guns, man. Just, so with his little finger, he goes, eh, little, eh, little assist. And 250 turns into 10 pounds, and like, oh yeah, I'm doing this. That is what the Christian life is about. I got I got the Holy Spirit, and I'm straining to live the Christian life. Holy Spirit is I got this. Come on, I'm helping you. It's no effort for him. You know why it's no effort for him? Because he's transforming you day by day from the inside to the outside. That's my story today. That's the message of Ephesians 4. We can't do it alone. We need each other, and the Holy Spirit will make those changes. You're not muscling it up by yourself. Amen? Well, that's what we're talking about from the inside out. Christ transforms us every day. The old is gone. The new is come. Amen? Have a great week. Come and join us in the well for our missionary deal. Have a great, great Sunday. Goodbye.